Thank you for that song. Great job. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. Verse number 14 tonight. You will all want to personally thank Brother Howard. He found my Bible. That was either good or bad. I'm not sure. You'll have to be the judge of that. Because it was either going to be a real short service or a real long service. As I tried to remember what I had written down. So it's tough to get old and forgetful. I'm going to have to start putting a string or a chain or something on my Bible so that when I lay it down, I, I know where I put it. Well, maybe for the first time in a few weeks, you feel a sigh of relief as you re- look at verse 14 and you see that it says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And you say, yes, that don't apply to me. Because I don't have any idols in my life. There's no idolatry around me and I don't live in a pagan land where they worship images of stone. And I hate to tell you this, but you're not going to get off quite that easy. Uh, idolatry is a prevalent sin today in our world, but not just in our world, in our own country, and in our own lives. We hear it described much more well, I should say much less offensively with phrases such as misplaced priorities and uh, twisted perspectives. Those are the things that you and I are guilty of, not idolatry. But like it or not, idolatry is any time we allow something else to have more influence in our life than God does. Regardless of what century it is, occurs, it's still idolatry. John wrote in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21, Keep yourselves from idolatry. Keep yourselves from idols. It may be a bigger problem than you think. This evening I want to walk you through five principles about idolatry that emerge from this chapter, and I am going to try to keep in mind that we have a fellowship afterwards. By way of introduction, let's look back at verse 14. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. The word therefore is a connector. It indicates that we can really look both ways uh, regarding this instruction. If you would you could circle that word in your Bible and draw an arrow pointing in both directions. Essentially, Paul is making a conclusion based on what he said earlier. So what's behind, and he's also talking about what's ahead. What's behind and what's ahead is being incorporated in this therefore. If we're going to understand, though, idolatry, we need to back up to verse 6 for just a moment to see the definition of idolatry. He says in these verses, now these things occurred. He's referring to the, the crossroads that the Israelites have come to, and it is this story on which Paul bases his 
exhortation to flee from idolatry. When the Israelites refused to follow God, they were in no uncertain terms following something else, and that is idolatry. That's why we say idolatry is always at the core of every crossroads of obedience. When we choose our own way instead of God's way, we are in fact guilty of the sin of idolatry. Now here's something I want you to think about. Each time we choose what we want instead of what God wants, we're putting ourselves before God. And that is idolatry. And you're faced with this decision every day, perhaps almost every hour of every day. I'm saying that when we say, I love my sin more than I love God, that's idolatry. When we say, I love my way more than God's way, I am guilty of idolatry. When I love my desires more than God's desires for me, that's nothing short of idolatry. You may remember from your Old Testament studies as a, as a young person in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, the story of the three Hebrew young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were faced with a decision of either bowing to an idol or staying true to God. That was a crossroads. And to disobey that law that God had given would have been idolatry. Always idolatry is first and foremost an inner spiritual sin of the heart that involves desiring after things selfishly instead of loving God supremely. The second part of verse 6 says, and setting our hearts on evil things. The NASB translates that as craving evil things. The picture is clear. Idolatry begins in the heart. Idolatry is always more about taking while true love is about giving. And it doesn't, and this does fit this text. What the Corinthian believers were asked to do with their new freedom. They were to be willing to give it up for a weaker brother. But without love, that wouldn't happen. Instead, we'll seek our own way. We will desire our own gratification, and we will end up committing idolatry. When I is your most common word, you need to be careful because I is a part of idolatry. The part, the idolatry part is not far behind. Secondly, the detection of idolatry in verses 7 through 10. Idolatry becomes visible in things like addictive habits, controlling hobbies or possessions, unhealthy relationships, rebellious attitudes, and divisive words. If you look back at verses 7 through 10, you'll find four sins listed there. And those four sins are sins that dogged the Israelites for years. In fact, because they refused to follow God at the crossroads in their life, 
Uh, Those sins followed them the remainder of their days. We see them in false worship. Exodus chapter 32 described how while Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the children of Israel were down in the valley with Aaron, and there they uh, constructed a golden calf. They called themselves worshiping Jehovah, but in fact they were worshiping an idol which was constructed by their own hands. The second thing that is mentioned is sexual immorality, and it refers to the occasion in Numbers chapter 25 when Moab committed adultery. And then there was the testing, testing of the Lord, questioning God's providence and his plans. And we saw that in Numbers chapter 21. And finally, there is murmuring, complaining against God and what God is doing in our lives. And it is true, if we look at those four categories of sin, that the Israelites had to deal with those sins on a regular basis. And so they paid dearly and severely for their refusal to obey God and those sins hounded them forever. Such is the case with us. The minute our hearts begin to love something or someone else more than God, boom, it shows up in our actions. For instance, a job. Nothing wrong with money or success or achievement, but let that creep into your heart to the point that it means more to you than God, and then you start taking away from your family, you start missing church, you stop robbing God, you start living selfishly for yourself, and your actions will show up that that is indeed your idol. It can be a hobby, a little softball on the side, a little hunting now and then, a little time on the internet, some TV now and then, but let your heart be taken over by your own desires for your own way all the time, and suddenly you spend almost all your time there, even delaying more important things that you ought to be doing and pushing them aside because you ran out of time or you just couldn't get around to it. Your hobby or activity has become your idol. A friend, you and your spouse know another family and before long your acquaintance starts turning to being very familiar More than one marriage has been ruined because they didn't reign in their hearts. Instead, they started wondering and dreaming what life would be like with this other person. Next thing you know, the family is destroyed. The marriage is ruined all because of an idol. It can even be on the opposite side of things and the negative side of things, and it could be a disappointment. Things haven't worked out the way you think they should have. And you've allowed bitterness to creep in. No one really sees it until they cross you. And then it usually spews out like a volcano. Unhappy with God, unwilling to let things go. Your words are stinging. A negative attitude indicates to more people than you realize that you're worshiping at the idol of discontent and what might have been. So we ought to take a a look at our habits and our hobbies and our attitudes and our relationships and then ask ourselves, do any of these indicate that I love something or someone else more than I love God? The third thing is the defeat of idolatry. Verse 15 says, 
I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not they who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? Then that altar is any uh, that an idol is anything, or what was offered to an idol is anything. Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. I think there are two ideas that the Corinthians may have in the back of their minds that Paul is actually seeking to answer here. First, some Corinthians may have been reasoning, well, since idols are not real, and it doesn't matter then that we eat meat that is offered to idols, And since it doesn't matter what we eat, then surely it doesn't matter where we eat it. Therefore, it is all right for us to attend the pagan temple services and eat it there. The Corinthians believed that since they did not intend to worship the pagan deities by being at those services, that they were not worshiping. Paul says you don't understand that that which is behind The worship of these false gods are demons, and they are very real. We have got to realize that there really are spiritual forces of darkness in this world that are looking to draw you away from a relationship with Christ, or at least to pull you out of fellowship with Christ. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. He says even today we can be a participant with a demon when we engage in things that seek contact with the dead, when we seek to cast spells, when we try to read people's fortunes through occult practices, all of those things are not just innocent fun, but they are demonic in nature and detestable to the Lord, which gives, given this time of year, raises questions about participation in Halloween activities. Historically, Halloween is not just innocent fun. It is based on traditions drawn from Druid worship among the Celts. But that's not the problem today. Some Christians have chosen to completely disassociate themselves with anything to do with Halloween. They close their house, they turn off the lights, they don't have anything to do with something that they consider evil. Some on the other side feel that it's all just innocent fun. Whatever you do, no matter how you dress, just all innocent fun. But is it? We have taken a kind of a middle road position here, which is we disassociate ourselves from anything 
to do with a celebration of Halloween, but offer our children and the children of our neighborhood a a safe and fun place to be. But what if you are invited by your neighbor or your co-workers to a Halloween party? Is that okay? Yeah, probably. But what if that person having the party in order to set the mood is going to have a psychic present to read everybody's palm or a tarot card reader for a little innocent fun? What about then? Here's where we have to be discerning. Because going to a Halloween party may not indicate idol worship or any association with demonic activity. But there are activities that we want to be wary of because they can open you up to demonic influences and those influences are real. The first thing was that some of these Corinthians believed because it didn't matter what we eat, doesn't matter where we eat it. The second thing that some of these Corinthians may have been reasoning was as long as we are participating in the Lord's Supper, we are safe. Now, that's not too much different from some uh, the way uh, our Roman Catholic brethren look at the communion, that the taking of communion is what keeps you in fellowship with God, and if you're not in fellowship with God, you're not going to make it to heaven, and therefore many of them come to the place that they believe that they're safe because they've had communion. And that seems to be the... Uh, opinion of these at Corinth. Paul answers that, uh, yes, they are, they are partaking in the Lord's Supper, but they are disgracing the Lord's Supper when they also have fellowship with demons. In this section, uh, we find that there are two ways of defending against idolatry which are given. There is resisting idolatry by consecration, and there is by removing themselves from the physical manifestations of that, that is separation. Verses 16 and 17, uh, <clears throat> look at consecration. Regarding consecration, I want you to note here in the text that he was pointing to the Lord's Supper as the place where believers come and manifest a unity with each other and with the Lord. Consecration contains the idea of setting ourselves apart for the Lord, and communion is one way that we can show each other and the Lord of our desire to be completely devoted to Him. In a way, when we take communion, we are saying, Lord, you gave it all for me. I want to give it all for you. Moses and Joshua, when they wanted to encourage the people in the Old Testament, they said, consecrate yourselves to the Lord this day. And the New Testament writer urged the Roman believers to offer themselves as a living sacrifice set apart and holy. We consecrate ourselves by submitting ourselves to him, by turning the throne of our life over to the Lord Jesus. The one thing that we know about a throne, only one person can sit on it at a time. Separation is the second thing in verses 20 and 21. Once we do that, how do we, 
how do we carry out that consecration in our life? How, how do consecrated people live? Separated to the Lord. Specifically here, what was happening in Corinth as believers were that they were participating in communion, yet also attending pagan services where demonic activity was going on. The problem, as Paul says, is not the meat at the ceremony. The problem is that you are at the ceremony. It was their participation that opened the door to sin and unbelief, causing them to live a hypocritical life that was involved in worshiping both God and demons. And for those who are professing Christians, this kind of fence-straddling was forbidden. We obviously are called to be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But we are also called to do that while still remaining strangers, pilgrims, and sojourners. There is a world here, and this is our place to serve as God's people. But as God's people, we are to act and live differently. We need to live lives separated from the philosophy and the evil practices of the world in which we live. We live, in, we live in the culture, but we don't live like the culture. But if we decide to ignore the signs of idolatry in our lives, be aware that God at some point will take action because his character demands it, which brings us to the fourth and final point tonight, the devastation of idolatry. <clears throat> Verse 22 says, or do we do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Idolatry arouses God's righteous jealousy and anger and moves him to take an offensive posture against our pride. Paul says, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? And the implied answer is what? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. But how? Well, in the same way that Israel did way back then, by honoring the Lord on one day of the week and then giving their affection and their attention to something else all the rest of the week. By coming to the Lord's house on Sunday and living like the world the rest of the week, they're cheating on the Lord like a wife or a husband who has another person on the side. One of the harder principles for me to accept and really get my head around is the principle found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5 where the Bible tells us that God is a jealous God. The, word, the Hebrew word translated jealous literally means to become intensely red. It seems to refer to the changing color of the face or the rising heat of emotions which are associated with the passion over something that is dear to us. When we think of the characteristics of God, if I had just started in the middle here of the service and said, would you name the characteristics of God? Jealousy is not one of those that immediately jumps to the forefront of our minds. Yet five times in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated jealous is used to describe God. 
What these five words have in common is that they all share the same Hebrew adjective translated with the English word jealous. The interesting thing about that word is it is only used in reference to God. It in no instance is used to describe human jealousy. But God not only accepts jealousy as a trait, he even takes it on as his name. Exodus 34, 14 states, whose name is jealous. What does it mean that God is a jealous God? God is a jealous God and he has moved to act against those who steal the worship that is due to him. James chapter 4 and verse 6 says, God opposes the proud. Literally, the word oppose means God takes an offensive position against those who resist him in pride. In a word, pride causes us to steal God's worship. It surely motivated Lucifer... But it also activated God to move against Lucifer and to cast him down from heaven. Pride and worship stealing cause God to stand against one. We need to examine our hearts to make sure that we allow no one or nothing to take a more important place in our hearts and lives than God does. Let's pray. We readily admit, Father, that it's hard for us to, to understand that you are a jealous God. But we also understand why you would be. No one else is worthy to receive the worship that you are worthy of. No one else is worthy to have first place in our lives as you are. And so, Father, forgive us when we allow things or people, hobbies or habits to come into a place that they become more important in our lives than you are. Sometimes it's even hard for us to realize that that has occurred. Father, help us to guard our hearts. We're not so afraid of the images of stone and wood but about those things that we allow to come into our heart and take your place father we pray that you'd help us to look and see what may changes might need to be made in our lives we ask it in jesus name amen let's stand